Hi everyone and welcome to episode 32 of Snippet Sports Science, proudly sponsored by EliteForm.com. I'm Chris Cavillio and today joined by Jared Coleman-Stark. How are you today, Jared? Excellent. How are you doing, Chris? Very well. It's great to have you on board and thank you very much for listening to our episodes. We've been really appreciating it and Jared's been doing a ton of work on the social media side and we've been loving the engagement, really enjoying the comments, the feedback and we've been finding this has actually been helping put a better podcast out for you. A lot of the work we actually look at tends to typically look at physical activity and so forth with training. So it's quite nice to investigate the nutritional side of things as in the last few episodes we looked at creatine supplementation and the wonderful effects of that. So today we're actually going to continue that theme and look at the review article called Periodized Nutrition for Athletes out of Sports Med by the author Dukendrup and apologies if I've pronounced that incorrectly. And this is another study from Loughborough University. We've looked at some of their work previously and they seem to put out some pretty good sports science. Yeah, definitely. I lived in the UK at Bath and at the time, Loughborough or... Loughborough for the American listeners. Yeah, um, they were the best university for sports and obviously with their publications here, just indicative of that. All right. So, one of the big elements that this article looks at is previously most nutrition in sport has focused very much on the effects of muscle. But we know that that is not the only thing that nutrition affects. It also affects the brain, vasculature, and intestines. And so those factors need to be accounted for in your nutrition for exercise. So the author here, Asker Jukendrup, has taken a periodized nutrition approach to this, where he defines periodized nutrition as the strategic combined use of exercise training nutrition or nutrition only, with the overall aim to obtain adaptations that support exercise performance. Under these concepts, there are several elements that we'll look at, including training low, training high, training the gut, training hypohydrated, the various supplements, and the individual needs of athletes. Just to elaborate a bit more on training high and low, that refers to carbohydrate intake around the training. It's become increasingly clear that adaptations initiated by exercise can be amplified or dampened by nutrition. For example, it's well established that in the absence of protein feeding post-exercise, net protein synthesis is low and the muscle may actually be in negative protein balance. There is also evidence that lowering carbohydrate availability can promote specific adaptations in the muscle. In contrast, high-dose antioxidant supplementation has the potential to reduce training adaptations. We know that quite some time ago, they say we need a lot of hard training to have lots of antioxidants, but here they're actually promoting that it's not the most ideal supplement to be taking. Researchers mostly focus on adaptations in skeletal muscle. There are many adaptations in other organs that are influenced by nutritional intake and that are important to sports performance. Such changes and their relevance for athletes are often overlooked or have received significantly less attention. Examples include, but not limited to, the vasculature, the brain, and the intestine. For example, there is evidence of the upregulation of carbohydrate transporters in the intestine in response to carbohydrate feeding, and there are alterations in gut microflora in response to changes in diet. Such changes could alter the delivery of nutrients and potentially affect performance. Therefore, the purpose of this review was twofold. Firstly, to clearly define the concept of periodized nutrition, and secondly, to provide a holistic overview of the methods that could fall under the umbrella termed periodized nutrition. In this review, they provided an overview of potential strategies aiming at specific adaptations that could help athletic performance 
and therefore they determined the term periodized nutrition. The term nutrition periodization is typically used to describe changes in nutritional intake in response to certain periods of training. For example, during certain periods of training there is a focus on weight management and lower energy intake, whereas during other periods there is a focus on recovery and performance and higher carbohydrate intake. Moving into specific methods for nutritional training, this will be a two-part episode. So in the first part, we'll be covering training low or high carbohydrate. And in the second part, we'll be covering training the gut, training dehydrated, and improving training adaptations with supplements. So what's training low all about, Jared? Training low is when you have low carbohydrate availability. This can be either as low muscle glycogen, low liver glycogen, or low carbohydrate intake during or after exercise, or any combination of those different factors. And what's the rationale behind reducing carbohydrate? The rationale is derived from early studies that observed links between carbohydrate availability, such as muscle glycogen, and gene expression. So we see that as there's low muscle glycogen or carbohydrate availability, certain genes get expressed that we believe are beneficial for training adaptations. For example, for protein synthesis to occur, it's important that there's a stress signal, transcription, and translation, that messenger RNA remains stable, and that sufficient amino acids are available for protein synthesis. Therefore, amino acids must be provided in the diet for the protein synthesis to happen. Although it's clear that gene transcription alone is not a guarantee that protein synthesis will occur, it is a necessary step for protein synthesis. Studies have also demonstrated a link between the muscle glycogen and AMPK expression, as lower muscle glycogen results in greater AMPK expression. Just to quickly cover what AMPK is, is it's AMP kinase. It's a protein that is activated by the presence of the molecule AMP. AMP is a derivative from ATP, the energy unit for the cell. So as the muscle contracts, ATP is broken down to ADP and AMP, and then that AMP activates AMP kinase, AMPK. And it's the carry-on effects from AMPK that cause a lot of the training adaptations. There's been a fair few studies around this as well, looking at demonstrating links between muscle glycogen and AMPK expression as well. Absolutely. And we think a lot of those expressions may be enhanced to a greater extent when the exercise is performed under conditions of carbohydrate restriction. Glycogen, in particular, plays an important role in the regulating gene transcription in muscle which can alter protein synthesis and ultimately the training adaptation. So that's an overview of training with low carbohydrate, but there are specific methods for being able to achieve low carbohydrate in and around training. And there's six of those. The first is training twice a day. So you decrease your muscle glycogen with the first training session, and then you have lower muscle glycogen moving into the second training session, which increases the expression of relevant genes. The second method is to train fasted, which causes the liver glycogen to be low initially. Third, you can train with low exogenous carbohydrate availability. This means that no or very little carbohydrate is ingested during prolonged exercise, and this exaggerates the stress response. The fourth strategy is to have low carbohydrate availability during recovery. So post-exercise, no carbohydrate or very little carbohydrate is actually ingested. This can also prolong the stress response. Fifth, you can sleep low. 
which means that the post-exercise period in which there's low carbohydrate availability is actually extended, causing muscle and liver glycogen to be low for several hours during sleep. Six, you can just have a overall low-carbohydrate, high-fat, or ketogenic diet, which results in long-term low-carbohydrate stores. Covering each of these in more detail, the first strategy, training twice a day, was first demonstrated by a study that used a one-legged kicking model to compare training daily, once a day, or training twice a day, every other day. That study by Hansen and colleagues found that the training twice a day increased the oxidative capacity and increased glycogen levels. However, it did use untrained individuals. Later studies, then using trained cyclists, trained them twice a day, every other day, or once every day. So the same amount of training volume, but either stacked two sessions in a day, every other day versus once every single day. What they found is that the cyclists who had training twice a day could not maintain the same intensity. However, despite the fact that they performed less work, some of the adaptations were actually greater for the cyclists that trained twice a day. What's found with tra training twice a day is that using fat as fuel is improved and that there are beneficial adaptations, although there are no differences in performance after about a three-week period. So it appears that overall, with training twice a day, what's most improved is your fat metabolism rather than performance itself. That's really nice there. So on the second point around training fasted, perhaps the most common way to train low is training in an overnight fasted state. Typically, the last meal is consumed somewhere between 8 to 10 p.m. at the night before, and as exercise is performed in the morning before breakfast. So a typical method for most people waking up early, doing something before the day starts. This situation is different from the previous method where muscle glycogen was reduced prior to exercise. In this case, training fasted muscle glycogen should be unaffected by the overnight fast, but liver glycogen will be very low. One example demonstrated that training in the fasted state may induce more profound adaptations than training in the fed state, or in other words, a carbohydrate-containing breakfast consuming carbohydrates during exercise. The authors concluded that training in the fasted state was more effective to increase muscle oxidative capacity than training in the fed state. They also observed that intramuscular fat utilization was increased with fasted training and noted improvements in the regulation of blood glucose levels. The mechanisms are likely to be different from training with low glycogen. In another study, Debock et al. showed that exercise in the fasted state facilitated intramuscular fat during exercise and improved glycogen resynthesis. In another study, they found that small changes were observed in proteins involved in the regulation of fat metabolism, but this did not result in measurable changes in fat oxidation. So these results of these studies are quite promising, and there appears to be potential benefits of training in the fasted state. However, as always, there's still a number of practical questions that still need to be answered, such as how many days of training per week are needed, what is the type of training, such as intensity and duration, that is most suitable for fasted training, and how many weeks should this training be performed to see meaningful effects? There seems to be a common theme so far in that these training low strategies improve fat metabolism, but don't actually cause performance improvements. Moving into the third strategy, which is training adaptation with low exogenous carbohydrate availability. Jared, over to you. We found that although the benefits of carbohydrate ingestion during exercise are generally recognized, carbohydrate supplementation during exercise may not have only positive effects. The positive effects may refer to the acute situation, 
but has been suggested that chronic use of carbohydrate during exercise may limit training adaptations. This idea stems from observations that muscle glycogen stores are related to the expression of genes relevant to the adaptation to training. It is generally thought that training adaptations are the result of recurrent changes in gene expression, which occur with every bout of exercise, leading to a change in phenotype, such as increases in fatty acid transport and oxidation. Long-term glucose ingestion might negatively affect the expression of relevant genes. Glucose ingestion can attenuate the rise in AMPK, and long-term suppression of AMPK could in turn reduce the increase in energy metabolism activity and reduce muscle glycogen accumulation. One study found that 10 weeks of leg extension training did not alter training adaptations related to substrate metabolism, mitochondrial enzyme activity, glycogen content, or performance. It was found that the 10 weeks of training had no effect of carbohydrate supplementation on these changes. It appears that the effects of glucose ingestion during exercise were distinctly different from those induced by exercising with low muscle glycogen. Also, another study observed improvements in succinate dehydrogenase activity with low glycogen training in the presence or absence of exogenous carbohydrate feeding. Succinate dehydrogenase is one of the enzymes used for energy metabolism, and so we're seeing that, again, a lot of these effects seem to be around the energy metabolism rather than direct performance. The fourth strategy is using low-carbohydrate, high-fat, or ketogenic diets. Chris, could you tell us about that? Definitely. Another way to train low would be to remove carbohydrate from the diet and to have a long-term low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. It was demonstrated in the 1920s that reducing carbohydrate intake and increasing fat intake will result in higher rates of fat oxidation. However, it was observed that subjects felt more fatigued and the exercise capacity was reduced with this practice. There is one study that is always referred to as evidence for the benefits of a ketogenic diet. In the 1980s, a study with five subjects showed that a ketogenic diet contained less than 20 grams of carbohydrate per day for a prolonged period of time, four weeks, resulted in hyperketonemia and increases in fat oxidation. In the study, exercise capacity was only tested at a low intensity and showed a large degree of variation between subjects and within subjects. On average, there was no difference in exercise capacity before or after the ketogenic diet. As expected, fat oxidation was increased and sun adaptations occurred in the muscle. Now, I know nothing about ketogenic diets and I know there's some people who love it, some people who hate it. For me, I'm just reporting what's in the information. I'm just finding all of this really interesting and by no means am I an expert in nutrition. Jared knows a little bit more. No, I don't think so. It's probably... Probably about the same. <laughs> <laughs> so, some really, really cool studies here. So, one study demonstrated that although a high-fat diet will increase fat oxidation, perhaps by increasing enzyme activity related to fat metabolism, it can reduce enzyme activities related to carbohydrate metabolism. While many studies observed improvements in HAD, one other study demonstrated compromised pyruvate hydrogenase activity. It may therefore be that fat oxidation is increased, or at least partly, as a result of their inability to use carbohydrates, because carbohydrates are important substrates for high-intensity exercise, and such adaptations would be unwanted. In fact, one carefully controlled study by Burke et al. demonstrated there were no benefits of a ketogenic versus a high-carbohydrate diet or a mixed approach, such as higher or lower carbohydrates depending on training in elite endurance athletes. 
In fact, performance of high-intensity exercise was not improved by three weeks of intensified training in the ketogenic diet group. In fact, they had a decrement of 1.6% in performance, while athletes consuming the other diets made substantial performance improvements, such as 6.6% in the high-carbohydrate group and 5.5% in the mixed group. The ketogenic diet has received considerable attention in the popular press, and many claims have been made recently. However, it is important to realize that to date, not a single study has demonstrated performance benefits of a ketogenic diet, included the early study that is often referred to. Thus, at present, there is no data on ketogenic diets in athletes on which to base performance claims. So once again, if you're a big fan of this, don't come attacking us. We're just reading what's reported in literature. Right. And there does seem to be a, a strengthening theme, at least within this article, that there are metabolic benefits to low carbohydrate, but there don't seem to be performance benefits. And that if you're doing high intensity exercise, that carbohydrate can be quite beneficial. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fifth subject here is around carbohydrate restriction during recovery. So, Jared, I'll let you to cover that one. Yeah, so this is another concept uh, for restricting carbohydrate intake in which the first few hours after exercise are used to restrict that carbohydrate. The time course of transcriptional activity for many exercise-induced genes stretches across the first few hours of recovery and usually returns to baseline within 24 hours. Traditionally, it was recommended to consume carbohydrate immediately after exercise as this results in the highest rates of glycogen synthesis. A study by Pilligard and colleagues found that activation of metabolic genes was augmented following 75 minutes of cycling exercise when carbohydrate intake was restricted over 5 hours compared to the controls. Cochrane and colleagues showed that carbohydrate ingestion post-exercise and not necessarily changes in muscle glycogen content per se, altered the metabolic response to repeated sessions of high-intensity interval exercise. There was improved metabolic adaption to exercise. Other studies, however, could not confirm this and found no differences between high and low carbohydrate intake during recovery. A recent study investigated the effects of post-exercise carbohydrate intake versus carbohydrate restriction on glycogen and gene expression. The carbohydrate intake resulted in partial glycogen replenishment, but gene expression was not different between the two groups. After 24 hours, glycogen replenishment was similar in the two groups, and gene expression levels returned to baseline levels in both groups. It is not impossible that changes in gene expression levels went unnoted because the timing of the relatively small number of sampling points may not have been perfect. Thus, the effect of carbohydrate manipulation in the recovery phase is still uncertain. What's not touched on in that section, though, is that there have been observed to be immune differences in carbohydrate ingestion following exercise, and that one of the best things you can do to boost your immune system, which is often vulnerable after high-intensity exercise, is to consume carbohydrate following that exercise. I don't do a lot of aerobic exercises, you know, Joe, but I'm kind of leaning towards having some carbohydrate post-exercise. How about you? Well, and the, and the thing is, pretty much any resistance training is high-intensity exercise. Definitely. And so if we're looking at high-intensity exercise, which I think almost all resistance training should fall under, otherwise you're not really lifting. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then it would make sense to be having some carbohydrate around resistance training for sure. 
Anyway, we're talking about endurance here and something that I don't do much of. Anyway. Right. Well, there's just more research in, yeah, in endurance. Yeah, the, the research training research will come about eventually. But all right, so this is our final method for having low carbohydrate, sleeping low. Can you tell us about that, Chris? The concept of carbohydrate restriction during recovery was extended into another study where the concept of train high, sleep low, which referred to a hard workout in the evening, resulted in lower carbohydrate availability. So muscle and liver glycogen followed by sleep. This practice goes against the typical advice to athletes to consume carbohydrates post-exercise and before going to sleep to speed up recovery. Training high and sleeping low, however, resulted in a greater upregulation of several exercise-responsive signaling markers with roles in lipid oxidation the following morning compared with when an evening meal was consumed. In this study, train high, sleep low did not elicit a greater upregulation of cellular markers and mitochondrial biogenesis. The study only addressed the acute changes and did not intend to study the long-term effects of metabolism performance. A follow-up study performed in France studied the longer-term effects of the train high, sleep low approach. In this, two groups of triathletes undertook the same endurance training program for three consecutive weeks. One group followed a sleep low strategy where they had their high-intensity workout and then post-session they had a restricted carbohydrate recovery meal. And this doesn't really speak much to the mental side of it as well, that if you you have a big heavy training session, you try and go to sleep without eating very many. I just imagine myself, I'd be craving carbs. Yeah, definitely. Like as I'm just lying there in bed, I'd be like, oh man, oh, I something need, to need some pasta or oh, something, you know? Oh. And the control group, 10 athletes, maintained regular carbohydrate intake throughout the day and undertook each training session with their normal high carbohydrate availability. At the end of this, the triathletes performed a simulated triathlon race at the start and the end of the intervention period. The authors found a small but significant effect on performance as 10 kilometer running performance increased after three weeks in the sleep low group, but not in the control group. The authors also reported improvements in supramaximal cycling time to exhaustion with sleep low, but not the control. So these are the only two studies of the concept of train high, sleep low, and it may be too early to draw firm conclusions. However, these studies do provide promising results. From a practical point of view, it's important to be aware of the potential side effects and the unknown of this approach. And as we know in many studies, they say they use elite athletes, but are they truly elite doing the big kilometers that they would traditionally do? And if they're not using these type of athletes that are doing this type of training loads, caution must be exhibited when trying to implement this type of approach. Definitely. And you, it's funny once you've read enough uh, sports science literature that you can start seeing cultural elements come through academic papers that uh, in here they've, they've come up with the term train high, sleep low. And and to me, this it's clearly come from endurance altitude literature. That's, that's, that's what, me, what, make, what it makes me think of just straight away is someone was thinking, oh yeah, train high, live low. Train high, sleep low. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's obviously referring to altitude, and this is referring to carbohydrates. So it's just a bit of a that's very endurance training. So we can see that a lot of this literature has been very much focused on aerobic exercise. Although I think a lot of the high intensity literature, maybe not the prolonged, ex exhaustive exercise literature, but the high intensity literature can be applied to resistance training outcomes. Yeah, that's a really good pick up there. Very well done. And the next concept is around training high. So we've spoken about the points of training low, so low carbohydrate availability. And the next section here is about training high, which refers to the training with high carbohydrate availability. 
In this, the muscle and liver glycogen levels are high at the start of exercise and all the carbohydrates are supplemented during the exercise. There are two main reasons for using this approach. Firstly, carbohydrates have shown to be important to maintain the quality of endurance training and reduce symptoms of fatigue and overreaching. The second reason for training high is related to intestinal function. In longer events, it is clear that ingesting carbohydrates and increasing exogenous carbohydrate oxidation will result in improved endurance performance in most events. It is often argued by coaches that it is essential to maintain a high quality of training to optimize long-term training adaptation. There are a few studies that support such beliefs. In one study, they evaluated a group of trained rowers who performed daily hard training twice a day for four weeks while consuming a normal carbohydrate or a high carbohydrate diet. Mean power output in 2.5 kilometer time trials increased 10.7% in the high carbohydrate group and 1.6% in the normal carbohydrate group. They simulated a training camp scenario where the athletes performed one to two weeks of intensified training resulting in extreme fatigue and decreased performance by the end of the intensified training period. A consistent find in these studies was that when the athletes were supplemented with carbohydrates and had a higher overall carbohydrate intake, reductions of performance were less profound and the symptoms of overreaching were reduced, despite the fact that they performed more work in training. Therefore, there is evidence that during extreme training with repeated high-intensity work, a high-carbohydrate approach is preferred. However, it must be noted that these studies use an extreme training volume to simulate a training camp situation and the result after one to two weeks was a decreased performance in all the groups. Although the train high group seemed to recover better, the effects on lower term performance or the effects of more moderate training with higher or lower carbohydrate are understudied. I do wonder though when they did say that they use an extreme training protocol whether it was truly extreme or whether when you look at elite population it was actually kind of just normal training normal training is what you would do as an everyday elite athlete <laughs> and sometimes that's what some researchers will do is that they you'll look at and you go well that looks quite normal or they'll actually go to the extreme and say we'd never do that and that is probably a bit too much however something really good there to note that train high train low there's pros and cons for it but it's just seemed to there's a much shorter section here with train high that just seemed to lean towards more support. It seemed more realistic in an elite population to not restrict your carbohydrate intake because there seemed to be just more benefits. Yeah, or if you are going to be, rest- I agree completely with that interpretation, but if you are going to restrict your carbohydrate intake, do it during a low intensity phase of your training. So when you have high intensity training, you definitely want to be consuming some carbohydrate from my interpretation there. But then if you're doing lower or maybe even moderate intensity training, you can get away with not eating as much carbohydrate. And that might be the time to do that if that's part of your periodized nutrition. And that's where we're going to leave this episode today. So thank you for joining part one of this two-part series. And next week, we'll just go over the points about training the gut, training dehydrated, and improving training adaptation with supplements. Thank you once again for joining in. Thank you, Jared, for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to Elite Form for sponsoring. And again, we really appreciate for you coming on board. Tune in next week and talk to you then.